Jake. Chris. Do you think I should change the sound of the intro to just a clattering diesel sadly <laughs> driving by? <laughs> Why? Why? Which which sad diesel is this? It, all of them ever. But just like Why just, are we the sad diesel podcast all of a sudden? Because my 911 is still gone. <laughs> I drove, I'm just I drove listening my 911. What's that? I drove my 911 today. I know. My, 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 my 911? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like the half eleven, but it's yours. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris, and I'm Jay. And we have a fun episode for you today. I kind of have an idea what's going on. Maybe I kind of do. You had me look up a little bit of stuff, which is kind of cool because this is something I looked into when I was on my journey. I just was out in Maryland, right? So you went through this area we're going to be talking about. I did, and the best part of going through this area was, if you'll bear with me, I'm bearing. Was meeting uh, Edmund. Okay, who is Edmund? Edmund? The knife maker. Mm. Yes, I saw this on your Instagram. So I stop at all kinds of places. Stop right. and talk to people. You, you've been with me on stuff. I, I always stop and talk to just dudes or if it right. was a girl or pick up a hitchhiker, whatever it is. I always am interested in talking Especially to people. Especially if they're girl hitchhikers. I've done that, and not because <laughs> they were female, but just because... I, maybe I'm less likely to get, maybe I'm more likely to get stabbed. I have no idea. Anyway, so I was, the whole trip I'd been looking for a knife because I forgot my pocket knife at home. And I like having a pocket knife. Yes. I just do. I like having a knife. When I don't have it, I always need to cut something or open something. I know. Especially if it's, you go to like the store. What is that, and Murphy's Law? If yeah. you'd like, well, that's if something goes, something will go wrong if it can. It's basically if you need something, you'll need it. Or if you, you don't have, have something, you will need exactly. it. Exactly. Yes. Just like that's why I try not to throw things away because the instant I throw something away in my garage, I'll need it, whether it's the tool, the part, the whatever. Right. Even if I don't need it, someone will be like, hey, do you have one of these? I'm like, well, I used to like four minutes ago before <laughs> it got chucked in the garbage can. Anyway, so I'm driving and I see, and anyway, so I'm looking for it. Sorry, I'm looking for a knife, right? So I, we stopped by a little outfitter in the middle of the West Virginia. Wait, why mountains. didn't you have your a knife with you? I forgot it. Okay. I just, I couldn't, I don't know. We, Packing all kinds of stuff for four people to leave yeah. is in a, in a in a hatchback was a little difficult. Should have brought the wagon. I don't have a wagon anymore. You, oh, the the Mercedes wagon. Yeah, no, you. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to put my family through that. It's just too slow. When, when, did you just send me this gif of this knife? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. that, that's okay. not it. But that's yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, which now we're inside Way joking on a podcast. Me. That is that is not Why nice. Why did you do that? That is not nice. No. So I did. I was looking. For, I found one at like a little Outfitters okay. in uh, in nowhere West Virginia mountains. They had like guns, yams, knives, yams. Yeah, they had lots of produce, okay. all kinds of weird stuff. Ponchos. Uh, they had a little place where you, they would repair your bike for you. It was kind of like a general store, right. but with bike repair and guns. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely <laughs> it was, love that. It was pretty good. It was, well, up there, it's just kind of you can't have a separate bike shop plus an extra gun shop plus the general store. There's just not enough economy. Right. right. There's it's just not one. enough economy. So it's all in one. Yes. So I walk in there and I'm looking at knives. I'm like, I like that one. So she pulls it out of the case and it says made in China. I'm like, nope. I don't not. like that one anymore. I don't like that one anymore. And she kind of almost felt ashamed. We're in West Virginia. She's mm. like, oh yeah, China. Mm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I'm like, how about that case knife right there? Because I know case is made in America. Case yes. knives, not not a sponsor of the podcast. Case <laughs> knives are made in America. So I pull this one out. It's got like uh uh, I have it with me. I can show it to you. It's got a white handle. Okay. It's a really here. Hold on. Little jackknife. Little oh oh yep. Uh, 
Yeah, this is kind of your classic... Classic pocket knife. Yes. So your grandpa had a pocket Folding. knife, it probably looked like this. Exactly. Very heavy, it's a very heavy knife. It's made in America. It's very sharp. Yep. They make great knives. So I buy this knife. It makes the right noise when you close it. Yeah, there it is. It's, it's what is that uh, called? The the action. That's of that. called a clicking knife. A clicking <laughs> no. knife? What? Surely, I think it's, it's, isn't it just a jackknife or a folding knife? I have no. Or well, a folding knife, yes, but there's got to be a name for that action because it's like spring loaded. Right. You know, it's sprung. Anyway, so I bought that and I Kay. felt pretty good about my purchase. It was like Kay. eighty bucks. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's so, a that's a high end little knife. High end pocket knife. You right. know, you can get like you can buy. I have a Benchmade knife too that was like yes. one hundred and fifty dollars. Right. right. But, but this is like yeah, this, this is just, just a pocket like knife. American pocket knife. So you can get like the buck. Or you can get the old timer, right? Or you can get the case, and there's yep. you know just American knives, and that's kind of what I wanted, right? And this one's white with a white or a red, white, and blue American flag, yep, embasoned in case. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> it's so West Virginia, it's great. So I bought it, and I felt good. Kay. Felt good. I had my knife, and so I was driving along, and Jesse goes, "Knife guy, guy builds knives." Or whatever wow, she said. Like, what? <laughs> like, is there just a, a sign on the freeway? There's a sign on the side of the road that says custom knife making. Ooh. It's a really unassuming sign. Yep. And it's just hand painted. And you go, damn it, why did I just buy this one? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I just bought this knife. Damn it, here's a custom knife guy. This is cool. And it's it's in West, it's in, this is in Virginia now. Okay. And it's this rolling. We've moved east. Yeah, We're we not moved west east. Virginia. And it gets, it's starting to get towards like Alexandria. You know, you're an hour from DC. Okay. It's, this area is nice. Okay. Yes. You start getting into Eastern Virginia, the closer you get to DC, it gets really nice and it gets bad. And then it gets to DC. Okay. So this is a really nice area. It's, got everybody's it. got huge amounts of land. It's all rolling hills. It's very green. Yeah. Very pretty. And there's all kinds of history everywhere in this area. Anyway, so I turn the car around. And I'm like, oh, to hell, I can buy another knife. Who cares? So I turn the car around. And I go up this driveway, this long gravel driveway. It's probably eighth-mile long driveway. Not really long, but long enough. Sure. And there's a white house okay. with a white um, shop that's okay. sitting next to it. And there's, like, a Confederate flag hanging in the window. Okay. And I pull up, and this guy walks out. And I go, you make knives. He's like, I do. I'm on a watermelon break. I'll be right out. What? Yeah. It was hot. It was 90 something degrees out. Okay. He must have been working in the shop. Watermelon no break. So I stand there for five minutes while this guy has his watermelon break. Did he eat the whole watermelon? I don't know. He was inside. So he comes out. I introduce myself. He, uh, like, I'd like to see what you make for knives. I go in there and I immediately know I do not have enough money. Oh. Because there's like a LeBlanc lathe. There's a C, oh. like a CNC machine in there, yes. like a manual CNC machine. Yes, I don't know, just like a, with the drill bit that comes down and the table with the jigs and everything else. Yeah, and he's got like it's, little vices on the table that he has. It's a mill. A mill. Yes, sorry. Um, and he's got vices on the table that have custom mounts to angle them off the the, yeah. the, the bench in a certain way. And yep. they, he's got uh, jigs and those to hold his stuff. And I'm like, wow. And there's all kinds of stencils on the wall of all the knives that he makes. Okay. And he makes, um, I don't remember what it was called, uh, damn me, but it was just like single piece knives. So sure. the blade and the tang, which is the part that goes through the handle, it's mm -hmm. all one piece. Yep. He's, like, he's like, I don't do any of that blacksmith bullshit. He says, I buy the highest quality steel and I make the knives. Oh, okay. He says, this stuff is way better than any of that, you know, folded steel, you know, sure. romantic bullshit that everybody's doing. He was kind of <laughs> adamant about that. And he goes, here, hold this one. And I, and I, well, first of all, I go, I was looking for a knife, but I only got a hundred bucks and that ain't obviously ain't going to happen. He's like, yeah. he's like, yeah, no, <laughs> you can maybe buy a, my book that they've written about me. 
for a oh. hundred bucks. And I'm like, ooh, okay, all right. There's a book written about him. Uh-huh. So I'm holding this knife. He's like, what do you think that material on that handle's made of? I'm, I'm like, I don't know. It looks like bone. He's like, that's mastodon from Siberia. What? It's 40,000 years old. Wow. And I'm like, holy shit. He's like, I'm like, well, how much does something like this go for? He's like, about four or $5,000. Yep. And I put it down immediately. Yes. And I said, uh, there's all kinds of stuff laid out. I'm like, where's the good stuff? Yeah. He's like, well, I, I can't show you the good stuff right away. I got to work you up to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So you can't just bring out the big gun. Like so then he guy. shows me another knife and it's got the, it's got a bunch of engraving on the blade. This is just a really kind of like a simple, um, obviously they're all fixed blade, but simple fixed blade style uh, knife. Yep. And it's got some engraving on it. I'm like, oh, your engraving's beautiful. Do you do any guns or 1911s or anything like yeah. that? He's like, the guy that does my engraving is the same guy who does the engraving for Jesse James. Oh, wow. And I'm like, well, how much is this one? He's like, this knife's about $20,000. <laughs> I'm like, okay. We're moving out. <laughs> and, and he's like, and the he's like the the sheath for it. What do you think of that? I'm like, oh, it's cool. It looks like alligator. Leather. Like, leather, alligator, crocodile, whatever it would be. Which yeah. one lives? Crocodiles are saltwater. So this is a freshwater. Yeah. So this is an alligator. Okay. And he's like, it's from the Nile. This is a Nile crocodile wow. sheath. I'm like, wow, this is really, we're getting good, right? Yep. And out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking, I see like, um, <laughs> I can't say it on the podcast. I'll tell you later what I saw. Or if anybody sends me a message on Instagram, anywhere <laughs> Something else, I'll tell PG. you the, uh, it's, uh, I can't even say, okay. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you, uh, uh-huh. about it. It, it, it uh-huh. Yes. But so in between that stuff and the, <laughs> and the other knives he showed me, he starts handing me guns. Okay. And he's like, what do you think of this one? He's like handing me a gun. I'm like, oh, this is great. He's like, like a rifle? Rifles, like bolt action rifles. And they are heavy. He's like, yeah, that's ironwood. That stock on that's ironwood from ironwood. like from like Africa. I'm like, holy shit. It felt yeah. I mean, it felt good. He's like, he's like, hold it up. And he's like, this guy was Wow. Awesome. Yeah. He was talk about welcoming. You're some guy literally off the street. Yep. Literally off the street. This guy is inviting me into his place. Yeah. Honestly, I'm pretty good at talking to people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got a good vibe about me. I'm not, I don't look creepy or crazy or anything to most. Depends on the environment. But in this environment, I'm fine. And so he's like, all right, let's open the safe. So he puts (laughs) us, he's got a safe that's probably, um, if you were to buy a really nice, like, uh, wolf refrigerator yeah about that big so okay is it a walk-in safe um you could have put probably four people in it yes wow okay not a walk-in safe but you could put four people in the safe and it's just sitting there wow in my head i'm like anybody could just come in here and i'm like well they're not what are you gonna do yeah this thing weighs more than a truck you know it's very extremely heavy so i kind of he kind of looks at me and i'm like oh yeah yeah and so i turn around so he can do the combination on the safe yep i hear chunk Opens the safe, pulls out this knife, pulls it out of the sh- out of it's in a like a gun case with a lock on it. Oh wow! So he undoes the lock, unzips the pistol case or it's like a large pistol case, like a lar- like a dirty hairy revolver size. Sure. Pulls out this blade that's probably eighteen inches long. Okay. All engraved. Okay. It's got. I don't know how to explain. I'm not a, like that is much of a knife. Is this the one, the like really nice one? This that is you the really one, okay. nice one that you saw. So on it's like gold inlay. It's. 24 karat gold inlay <laughs> engraved there is a woman on the hilt yeah you flip engraved. over you look, and there's a woman with a name i don't remember her name but she's got 38 diamonds around her okay because i guess maybe she was 38 when whatever he met her or something okay. like that yeah. and he's like yeah this this one is about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. wow i mean he's like 
I didn't even want to hold it. Yeah. You know, but it just, it looked, the craftsmanship of what this guy was doing was incredible. Yeah. It was really, really awesome. Anyway, so he's like, I want to show you one more thing. Do you like trucks? So like, yeah, I love sure. trucks. Okay. And take me around back. We'll look at some trucks. So <laughs> we, we go around he's, and I walk around the corner. And what do you think? I, you know, what I saw cause he saw the, I saw what it. do you think I thought I was going to see like an old F 100. Yeah. Something. Just like an old pickup. I walk around the corner. It's like one of those, that F six fifty. Yes. The monster truck. He's like massive pickup. He traded two knives <laughs> for this pickup. <laughs> wow. So this guy is legit yeah and his machine shop makes more than knives and it, it is absolutely incredible what this guy is capable of and what okay. he can do it's are it, these some of the items you're not talking about yes okay yeah yeah some of the items i'm the unmentionables which was really cool interesting yeah okay so anyway we talked Je i had jesse um i, I really like this guy yeah i really liked <laughs> i really liked his demeanor i liked what he did he was um he, he was confident in his work without seeming arrogant. Yep. He was very proud of what he was capable of. Mm -hmm. And he had lived on that property. His dad lived on that property. His grandfather lived on that property. Wow. And his great-grandfather built that property wow. in the 1800s. Wow. So his family had been there for generations, and he's making these knives. It was just it was really, really cool. And I'm like, cool. Jesse, I want you to take his portrait. Yeah. So she gets out of the car, comes over. He's like, right now? I said, right now. He's like... Well, I'm wearing, he's wearing a shirt that says like Bob or something like that. <laughs> okay. He's like, well, I'm, I'm like, dude, you're you. It's okay. Yeah. You know, this is who you are. I think this is the best part of you. If you change any of this, I don't want to do it anymore. We don't right. want to do it. He's like, well, let me at least go put my teeth in. <gasps> so he runs okay. inside and puts his teeth in and he comes out and Jesse's like taking his portrait and stuff. That's cool. Really, really awesome, dude. And I just wanted to share that because if you drive on the freeway and you you're don't gonna see take that. the car, you're never going to meet Edmund. Or anyone like him. That's right. Because you made the wrong choice. Anyway, so, you know, driving around in West Virginia. And this relates to a little bit of what we're going to talk about. Because I was right. exploring out there. And that right. kind of leads into where our story and what you've got for us. Yes. Happens so, today. Before we get into that, what have you got for us? No, so you, I'm doing that later. You're doing it later. <laughs> right, I'll do it I'll put it in right here. Are you ready? Ba-ching! What? All right, go ahead. That's, where I, that's the ad. I put the ad in right no, there. No, I'm going to read the ad later. That's oh, you're going to read later? Yes. Oh, so that was just me being stupid. That was really dumb. Okay, all right, go on. Go ahead. You could talk about our driver's club if you want. Again, I can talk about driver's stopped. club. Yeah. <laughs> idiot. I am an idiot. <laughs> driver's club, overcrestproductions.com slash driver's club. You know, we've talked about getting some, some shirts and some merch. Have we? We have. Um, we had to. Uh, we had a little bit had, of a we snafu. We had all of it. In we hand. had all of it in my garage, and we and we, then we sent it all we back. We sent it all back. Um, just because Wait, I want that, things. It, I want things to yes, be right for you guys. I was going to say that should go to to show our um, our level of quality that we're bringing. Yes. So anyway, overcrossproductions.com slash drivers club. If you want early access to that, right? You know, five bucks, ten bucks, twenty five bucks a month. You can choose how much you'd like to. Uh, to, to you know contribute, contribute for different to, levels of benefits and it's what makes all this possible help you guys the the drivers club help me scout idaho yeah you're you right. guys you're right that did that made that 
possible. You guys made it possible for me to get stranded on top of a mountain in a 30-year-old, 40-year-old car. So I appreciate that. Good and job. It, yeah. But without without you guys, yeah. it wouldn't have been possible to do that. Right. You know, so so it, it makes the rally possible. And we're going to give you guys, as a reward, we're going to give you guys access to all the merch set. It's all extremely limited. You're all going to yep. get access first. So evercrestproductions.com slash drivers club. All right, Jake. Right. West Virginia. Yes. Take so me home. A few weeks ago, a buddy and I attended uh, the Rucklose Rally, which is put on by a bunch of our friends in the Porsche community. And the rally is held down in rural West Virginia. Great rally. And while absolutely beautiful, a few things kind of struck me. First off, the roads. All of the roads were amazing, all perfect. technical, and pristinely paved. Like they were paved yesterday. It, yeah, it's as if all yeah. of the state's revenue recently went into repaving <laughs> every single remote mountain road in the area. And it was kind of like there's this contrast between seeing these economically depressed little communities mm -hmm. with dilapidated houses next to immaculately graded tarmac. Yep. It was just, it was strange. I always thought it was just so they could plow it better. Because it's got to snow up there, right? I yeah, mean, they but have usually to... that's what degrades roads is the plowing and the thawing. And yeah. it doesn't seem like any of that. No, they're all perfect. They were perfect. It was strange. So it was an amazing time. And it's a great group of guys with some killer old Porsches. Speaking of which, I, as some may recall, had planned on bringing down my recently acquired 944 Turbo with yes. the TDI. Yes. So I had rushed to get the car all set up and set to go. And just the day before leaving, I decided to really thrash the thing, right? You got to put it through your paces. Leave it to Jake to break the most reliable Volkswagen motor ever made. Yeah. So basically, yeah. I did try to break the thing. So I shouldn't be surprised when something did, in fact, break. So I had heard a pop and noticed a lot of smoke coming from the engine bay. So I pulled over and popped so the hood. literally popped your head gasket. No. So listen. So I heard a pop. I pulled over and it wasn't smoke, but steam. So one mm. of the coolant hoses that goes to the heater core at the firewall had blown off and sprayed coolant on the exhaust manifold. I see. So, so it, was like, it was like a your... ton of plume of steam. Yeah. So I thought it was like smoke and I heard a pop and I was like, Oh no! Oh, something bad. No, so, but you just pressurized your coolant system, right? With, with so I was boost, like, probably no, yeah. So I was like, oh no problem. I'll just tighten up this hose clamp, refill the coolant, get loaded up to leave in the morning. Good to go. Yeah, which I did. I got up bright Not and early, good to go. headed down the road, precisely two miles. Pop! I pull over, open the hood, and found a different coolant hose had popped off. This time, the lower radiator line. So out of like naive determination i simply reattached the hose and <laughs> filled the coolant tank with a few bottles of water i had in the trunk i then got that's something you do when you're like 90 percent of the way way yeah. to a place nope. that you're going nope. two miles no yeah no, that's why like, you no. turn around no, we're good this is fine it's yeah. just something don't even worry about it it's fine so i get on you don't have to macgyver <laughs> stuff when you're two miles away no i you can just go home but i did <laughs> I then got on the freeway and made it right across the border in Wisconsin where I'm picking up my buddy. Okay. And so I'm like pulling up to his house. He's like, hey, how's it going? I get out. Don't even acknowledge him. Immediately pop the hood because my temp gauge was just pegged on the way over. Right. So I expect to see another blown coolant hose, but found that the coolant was low and I think just like finally bled itself. Right. So in my blind optimism again, I popped <laughs> off the coolant. Threw Andy's bag in the hatch and headed what, on the what road. What in your in your adult brain? I'm gonna make it. We're why did it. you think that this was okay? Here's this is why. Two days in I a row. Expected, of this. Yes, I I don't know. You haven't lived with enough failure, right? Car I failure. Here, well, here's the other thing. I expected failure, 
and I like that was part of the adventure. So I had packed up basically every single tool I own that I had worked on this car with. Yep. Because I was like, all right, it's going to be an adventure of fixing things along the way. Right. So I was already in this mindset. And you left like a day earlier than it. you needed yes, to. Yes, I was already accepting like, okay, well, things are going to happen. So I'm like, all right, just going to keep going and fixing it. So yeah, we got on the road and basically West Virginia or bust. Country roads, take me home. I also played, did you play this song when you were driving? Yes. Virginia, Mountain Mama. Everybody hates us right now. It's so great. All right. And so we eventually made it a total of four miles down the road. <laughs> <laughs> the red light at the top of my temp gauge was glowing in infuriating red. And so we pulled off the freeway and luckily happened to be right by this old Volkswagen shop that I used to go to when I was yep. in high school. And one thing I have to say about this dumb car is the reactions you get are priceless. Oh, sure. People either love the thing or are just dumbfounded. And the consensus of the guys at the shop were pretty much split 50-50. Like, that thing's so cool, or... What are you doing? Why? Yeah. Yeah, but they were nice enough to attempt to pressure bleed the coolant system, suspecting that the non-factory hose routing was causing a big air bubble and therefore overheating. Problem was, we saw a continuous stream of tiny bubbles coming up through the expansion tank. Tiny bubbles. That is a song, isn't it? It is, totally. Okay, I was thinking that as I was writing this. Um, well, apparently that's indicative of a head gasket leak. Right. Which, in hindsight, makes perfect sense. I would have told you that the first time that happened if you would have called know. me. I know. So my injection timing was way off, so I was pushing way too much compression and basically blew through the head gasket into the coolant passages and was pressurizing the coolant system with compression which explains why the coolant hoses kept blowing off yeah. blew off so, so rather so what you did is you went home i was gonna say while you are like constantly shaming me into just changing the damn head gasket on the spot i did not you wussed out i took the easy route i uh, you wussed out yeah you're you wussed out i was like i'm not i was here's the thing I was pissed at that point. I was like, I really wanted to do it, but now we know it's a head gasket. I I just couldn't see doing the head gasket and then hitting the road again. I guess. I don't know. You So you actually would have done that. Yes. You would have done the head gasket and gotten back on the road. I've done worse. Yeah, true. What I did is I limped the 944 over to my dad's house, then drove the C10 back to my house and piled in the Macan and tracked that down to West Virginia. I think the difference between you and me yeah. is I can't take another car. Right. Like, I, if, right. I, if I go home, <laughs> I'm done. You're I don't have a Macan to get into. I can't leave a broken car with my wife and take the golf. You're right. This is, this is it. I don't have any yeah. other options. So while perhaps lame, it was by far the most comfortable car there. By a long Except shot. Except for the tractor. True. Yeah. That's Not comfy. the most comfortable, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, perfect AC, quiet, cooled seats, lane assist, and performance capabilities that far exceed any 944. I mean, my Mercedes has a couple of those options. does have AC and cooled seats, but doesn't have any of the rest. Your car has cooled seats, yeah, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Haven't you seen those beaded seat covers I have? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was like, no, it doesn't. So it was it was cool to make it down there because what was the whole point of going to the rally was hanging out with these guys. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was officially known as the Mobile at the rally, but it was a great time. 
So before I get into the rally itself, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from, Chris. You have the Petrolbox Basic, which costs what? Less than 20 bucks a month. You were looking, I thought you were quizzing me. I was like, I don't know. I know. That's why I just kept going. I saw the fear in your eyes. You also have the Petrobox Premium, which gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. So the rally itself was hosted out of a ski resort called Snowshoe Mountain. And one thing I found interesting. That's a high mountain for the area. It is. It was 8,000 feet. Yeah, seven or 8,000 yep. feet. Most of the mountains there are at most four. Right. Yep. It's not the Rockies. But yeah, it was, it was a tall mountain. And one thing I found kind of interesting, though, was that there was no cell service. So I was assuming it was just due to the mountains and a it's, rural area. It's honestly frustrating. You're up there like holding your phone yeah. out. Like, what's going on? I, I didn't think it's much like, of it. It's like a highly populated area. Right. Why yeah. is there no cell phone I, service? Yeah, I didn't really think much of it. And then we realized that there weren't any FM radio stations either. Huh. So you can't turn the dial. That's kind of odd. You do. And it's just <laughs> like, that's really strange. And even more strange was the need for every single room at the resort to have its own low powered Wi-Fi router. Huh. Also strange. Hmm. It wasn't until the second day of the rally that I kind of put it all together. As we were arriving to the uh, lunch spot, we noticed a massive radio dish. Now, when I say massive, I didn't realize just how large this thing actually was. All right, define massive. Well, after lunch, we decided to stop and take a look at this thing. And there's like an overlook in a visitor center. And what we learned was that this, the Green Bank Radio Telescope, was the largest steerable radio dish in the world. This behemoth weighs 7,600 metric tons and is 485 feet tall, which is 60% taller than the Statue of Liberty. Jeez, okay. Well, let's be clear that once you see the Statue of Liberty in person, you're woefully disappointed. I've never seen it in person. It's not very big. Okay, well, this thing was it's much like bigger. It's like walking up and meeting you. You're like, oh. Oh, I thought you'd be tall. down there. You know what I get from people when I do meet them? A, oh, I thought you'd be shorter. And B, oh, I thought your well, car was creepy. They, how big do they think you are? Good well, for grief. how much crap you give me. Apparently, they thought I was a legal midget. <laughs> All right, so the parabolic dish on this thing measures 100 by 110 meters, making the total collecting area 2.3 acres. So this is basically sitting there receiving radio waves from space at all times. Yes, So, but it's 2.3 acres, the dish. This thing could house two complete football fields easily. Right. So this, it's basically waiting for aliens to go, hello. Yes, hello? I'll get to that. I'll get to the purpose of it here in a you minute. You know what would be interesting is if we start hearing alien because we blast American music. Yes. What if we started hearing alien music? It's like <laughs> what would we think? It's just dubstep. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or they end up showing up because they heard our music and like, oh, yeah, we gotta wipe you guys, guys out. Guys, I'm it's, sorry, you're tasting yeah, music. Not that, good. That's the like that's the item yeah. that they use to decide if yes. civilizations live or die yep. is their taste in music. Yes. 
Absolutely. Okay. If they use auto-tune, you're dead. Yep. If they don't, you're fine. (laughs) So back to this massive radio telescope. This thing is, it has over 2,000 individual surface panels. They're independently operated by 2,209 small actuator motors that allow the dish surface to focus, right? Okay. Each of these panels are made from aluminum manufactured to a surface accuracy of better than 50 micrometers or two thousandths of an inch jeez super precise panels what makes this dish so impressive you imagine however, roller skating on those it'd be great i'd be super, super smooth, smooth. <laughs> super smooth what makes it so impressive though is that the entire contraption can be moved or positioned at different angles in the sky making 85 percent of the local celestial hemisphere accessible so they can just point it anywhere. the whole massive nearly three acre thing can just move wobbles around yes so what is this thing used for well, listening in on people's phone calls, not not listening in on people's phone calls, apparently. No. Oh, I was going to say if there's no cell phone service, nobody's calling anybody and they're not listening in. Just wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1956, the U.S. government spent $3.5 million to build what was at the time the single largest radio observatory in the world for the single purpose of searching for intelligent extraterrestrial life. The only way the ancient astronaut theory can be disproven is when the extraterrestrials show up. <laughs> I really what? wanted to find a clip of the, that's just that weird guy oh, from the history guy? I just wanted him going, aliens. <laughs> that was as close as I got. So you see, it turns out that we as a modern species emit a ton of radio waves. Every radio morning show, television broadcast, cellular phone call, Wi-Fi signal. It's got to sound like a train station. even Bluetooth connections emit radio waves in some form. And they've been leaking out into space since their invention, traveling for millions of miles. So so much for covert ops here. Exactly. Have you heard the theory about um, like whether we should be looking for aliens or not? Yes. I read about that. And so one guy says it's like a baby screaming in the woods trying to get attention of a bear. Like, yeah. that's not going to end well. No. Why would you do that? And the and the odds are is that we wouldn't know that the aliens were here until it was far too late. Oh, yes. Yeah, far too late. Yes, I did. I ran into some really weird conspiracy theories researching this whole thing. And one of the quotes is, oh, they've been here for years. <laughs> it's interesting. Like, the, from my perspective of listening and reading about all this other stuff, obviously we had the Area 51 guy on and yeah. did the Lockheed stuff. I'm interested in this. Yeah, I am too. If you look at the evolutionary, um, what it took for humans to exist as an intelligent being, you look at the the evolutionary structure and, right. and the path that we took to get here, could it have happened any faster mm. than it happened for us? Are we- Because everything started from the Big Bang. Right. So we're on the same timeline as everyone so else. So are we first? Are we first? I doubt or, it. Or how much- What are how the much odds more- of us being first? You know what I mean? I- pretty good if if it if it happened at a pace that's fast enough that the evolutionary because why would it be faster for any other species i don't know maybe their star happened to be slightly closer to the center of their galaxy and mass coalesced the thing is is that i look at it in terms of if a if a species existed a thousand years earlier than we did is that enough time to get them up on the kardashev scale which we've talked about before is that enough time to get them to like level one or level two here, where they'd be able to harness stars and galaxies and be able to get here. 
At Here's w- the at what sad point, truth, I think. At, you're wrong. If it's a sad truth, you're wrong. At what point do is a civilization able to harness energy that allows them to ma- manipulate space and time? You know, how much longer do you need to right. exist than we have to be Probably able to do that? Probably a ways. Yeah, 100,000 years, 200,000 years. Is that enough time? I don't know. I'm, Here's I'm the not thing. sure. When you look at the time, we're so off tra- track. Not really. Okay. When you look at the time span of the universe and of the existence of the, our planet, compared to how long humans have been here, it is such a blip on the cosmic time but scale. You, but you can't. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. It will probably, life on Earth will probably be extinguished far before we will become a Kardashev level civilization or some other one is able to reach us because this is just a tiny blip. That's why we have to get to Mars. That's why we have to get to Mars. What is that going to do? It's a different ecosystem. Yeah. And then the sun's going to burn out anyways. And the blip doesn't last any longer. That's not for billions of years. We don't have to worry about that. Which is small in a cosmic scale. I understand what you're saying, but if you look at it in terms of human life, yes, but you can't look at it in terms of human life. You have to look at the entire ladder of evolutionary, right. uh, the period of time that it took from the first cellular whatever to crawl out of the ocean till now. An amoeba. An amoeba. Or even that, <laughs> right, in the, floating around in the water, the plankton, uh-huh. looking for the secret recipe, uh-huh. right? The, all of that whole period of time right. is what you have to look at. Yeah. Was How fast did it happen? Uh-huh. Did it happen? Could it have happened faster? Or did it happen really fast for us? Or are we slow? That is what you have to to understand if there's other intelligent life out there, which there undoubtedly is. If you just saw the new the new satellite that they're using, I forget what it's called. Shame on yeah, me. Yeah, and they just took a picture of the of just, one teeny teeny little yeah, bit. If you hold a grain of sand at arm's reach, that is the amount of space of that they took a picture. And of. there's like hundreds of galaxies yes. in this space. Obviously, there's other intelligent life out there. Mathematically, the problem is that's so far away. It is. It's really far away. But I'm just saying. What's the time frame? Are we good? Are we really good at evolving? Are we I bad? bet we're average. Okay, so we got to be average. So we're average, but that means that if we're average, that means some are a little bit ahead of us, some are a little bit behind. Uh-huh. Are the people ahead of us at a, at a point where their civilization can travel here? I don't well, think so here's, yet. Here's the hope: if there were other because, advanced wait, wait, civilizations, one more thing. What? The radio telescope yes. is receiving radio waves from space, which travel at the speed of light. Yes. If a civilization was similar to ours, mm-hmm. and they just now started broadcasting within the last 100 years, mm-hmm. we are light, millions of light years away from these other right. places. Right. So Even we're not going to get are, them for a long time. We're not going to get those messages yes. for a long time. Right. Yeah, so what you're talking about is the whole purpose of this thing. Logic would dictate that if there were other advanced civilizations out there, they would also be emitting radio frequencies like that we could detect. And here's the thing, though. Only if they were at a point in their evolutionary (laughs) structure that it was millions. Which is why we haven't detected anything. Millions of years ago, they would have had to have been at the place where we are. Except for the wow signal. What? The wow signal. What's that? Didn't I do a story? I haven't done a story on the wow signal, have I? No. Oh, all right. Do you gonna, understand what I'm saying, though? I do. I do. They yeah. have to be us a million years ago for us to be able to receive their crappy alien music. In which case, well, yes, in which case they probably would already be on our doorstep. Because, because of a million years out, of evolutionary yes, light speed they'd travel. They'd be Kardashev 9000. Right. They'd be opening yes. micro wormholes and, and sending their alien music to us in real time. Right. So here's the thing, though. If we're able to detect this alien dubstep, <laughs> this telescope has to be extremely sensitive 
to detect any signals. Right. It's so sensitive, in fact, that any surrounding radio frequencies would affect the telescope's calibration. So, in 1958, along with constructing this massive radio telescope, the U.S. government created the United States National Radio Quiet Zone. The National Radio Quiet Zone, or NRQZ as it's called, is a roughly 100 square mile area surrounding the telescope. 100 square miles? Yes. Do any, does anybody live there? Yes. A lot of people. Do they have well, not cable? A lot. What do they yeah. do? Yes. So, well, here's the thing. In the 1950s, that didn't really affect people's daily lives that much. Right, because there were right? no cell phones right. or anything. And so what? Today, you didn't have this to the radio. This makes life in Green Bank, which is a town inside the NRQZ, quite different. What, what's the population of this town? Green, well, there's Green Bank. There's also Sugar Sugar something. There's a couple <laughs> different towns okay, there. Okay. Yeah, there's a few different ones. So there's no AM or FM radio, no cellular service, and no extended Wi-Fi. So did you go to any of these towns while you were there? Yes, we were there the whole time. Yeah. Okay. So I don't I don't necessarily remember them, but I was I was there too. Great rally, by the way. They yeah. really do a good job. Um, do you think living in this town, obviously you've got some modern <laughs> things. Yes. But does the social culture of these towns seem more like the 70s yes it does everyone says it's like going back in time to the 50s wow yes for better or for everyone worse. goes to the library because that's where your your basically hardwired computers and internet connection are you can yep. have it at your house too but no wi-fi no wi-fi you can have wi-fi but it's super like you have to have your router in your room with you that's why the hotel yep. had routers in every room uh-huh. they didn't have just a mesh network because that's too much right yes so the restrictions are so strict for radio activity that there are official radio police that drive around enforcing these restrictions. My main function is to look for radio frequency interference to the radio telescopes and also to go out and uh, inspect radio transmitters that have been built within the quiet zone to make sure they're not causing us any problems. So by illegal... Uh Booster on my CB radio wouldn't be good. Oh, to, it'd be bad. Yeah, it'd be it'd bad. Be way bad. So this guy is just in a truck with a giant like radio detector thing right. driving around. <laughs> and he's like, most of the time I just have to help people like tell them, hey, you're he's like electric fences mm. can start grounding out and that'll give out too much frequency. Like just things that aren't even radio transmitters. He's a radio cop. He's a radio cop. Yep. Yep. Not it's like Robocop, Robocop, but Radio, radio Cop. Cop. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the other thing. You talk about the people living in these areas. Because Green Bank is one of the towns in this area, it has zero signal activity. It attracts a certain type of person besides the does. people that have already lived there. Yes. You see, there are some people that claim that radio frequencies make them sick. The condition, called electromagnetic hypersensitivity, has no scientific basis and you ever is seen not a recognized. Better Call Saul? Uh, I know the of it. The brother of the main character in Better Call Saul has this. Oh, really? Has this affliction. Okay. So he, he has no electricity in his house. You got to put the cell phone in the mailbox okay. before you come in. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, but it has no scientific basis and is not recognized as a true medical diagnosis. No, it's, but being crazy is a medical yes. diagnosis. Well, here's the thing. As of 2005, the WHO recommended that claims of EHS be evaluated to determine if a person has a psychological condition and to assess that person's environmental issues for other things that are not actually EMS. Right. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting, these people, Chris. I moved to Green Bank for, uh, to use, for refuge. They Ooh. built a cell phone tower about a third of a mile away from my home. 
and nine months later I was injured from it. And actually, injured. at those times that when I was it's extremely sensitive or injured by electromagnetic radiation, I could tell you where the fluorescent lights were in the floor below. I don't have to see them. I can feel them. Sure you can. They've, By the way, they've done like double blind studies multiple times. People cannot detect that. My eyes can. When I'm in a room with fluorescent lights, yes. I hate it. Yes. So while many feel these people are simply crazy, it doesn't stop them from moving to the National Radio Quiet Zone in Green Bank. The problem is this is a teeny town and can't support the influx of people who, quote, aren't able to assimilate into the primitive nature of Green Bank. It lacks a Starbucks, an organic food op, or a wide variety of psychological services, for instance. So-called electrosensitives often see themselves as health refugees to a place where the local community struggles to get access to fresh food and standard health care. Diane Shao is a celebrity in the electrosensitive community and moved to Green Bank in 2007. In a recent interview, she stated that she comes from a middle-class family and isn't afraid to, quote, assert her needs in a town whose longtime residents are predominantly working simply to survive. A term that I created was uh, technological leprosy, where people carrying devices injure me and I have to stay away from them and live more like a leper. I mean, it's not that I'm contagious to the people, it's what they're ca carrying is injuring me. So these towns are like gritty, blue collar, mm -hmm. salt of the earth people. And then you have these weirdos coming into say, town who are super like privileged and acting like right, like oh well, these townspeople need to accommodate me. Right. I'm so I'm special. just wondering how many people there are, not these types of people, but the tinfoil hat type of people. Well, too. that's the other thing. Yes, there are people that think that 5G is going to scramble their brain, right? Or the government is coming to find them. Yes. Or as one local I talked to while I was there said, well. Some people just don't want the government spying on us. That's true. Some and just so don't. so they move there. Yeah. Okay. So besides the massive radio telescope searching for aliens, <laughs> restrictions on any type of radio technology, and all the weird people it brings in, there's something even more strange going on in the National Radio Quiet Zone. Before we get there, though, let's take a moment to talk about something not strange. Obert Car Care. Have you ever wanted to polish or detail your vehicle, but didn't know where to start? Yes. Oberk was researched, developed, and tested by car care experts to bridge the gap between enthusiast and professional-grade products and remove the guesswork from polishing or detailing your vehicle. These guys are passionate with a long history of developing products, so they know firsthand what makes a good product. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order at oberkcarcare.com when you use the code OVERCREST. Again, check them out at oberkcarcare.com, coupon code OVERCREST. All right, Chris, 30 miles northeast of the telescope, well inside the quiet zone, is another government site. The site, Sugar Grove, planned for a 600-foot telescope for the military long before there were discussions of a national radio astronomy observation. Observa what observa was that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cutting that out. That's too good. Observatory. Okay. That's what I tried to say. Okay. So the military was like, we're going to build something here long before they ever started building this big radio telescope. Right. The initial plans for the Sugar Grove site included a telescope much bigger 
than Green Bank at 600 feet tall. The initial goal was to monitor the Soviets at the start of the Cold War, but the plan was scrapped due to escalating costs. Instead, a smaller scale listening station for the U.S. military was developed that at one point helped the U.S. Navy communicate with its ships. Both sites were built in areas surrounded by mountains, and according to the author of this book who did this whole thing into it, that was by design. While Green Bank was built in a football shape to listen to galaxies far away, Sugar Grove was built in a bowl to intercept overhead satellite communication. As they bounced off the stratosphere and everything else. No. Quote, the dish, the original intent of it, was to point it at the moon and be able to capture Soviet signals as they bounced up from the USSR to the moon and land in that dish in Sugar Grove. Did it work? I don't know. No one said anything. Come on. No, I don't know. <laughs> Did it work or they not? They wanted to reflect it off the moon. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs> That's it. Come on. What? Does it, did it work? I don't know, Chris. Oh, Jake. I don't know. This stuff is still pretty, like, under wraps. So it gets crazier. The NSA then started to take an interest in the upper base in the 1980s for years. Work at the upper well, base. Well, obviously it worked then if the NSA yeah, okay. is interested. Good point. Okay. We answered our answer. Right. Okay, yes. So <laughs> for years, work at the upper base largely went under the radar. <laughs> That's kind of a pun. Uh, until information was leaked by a certain NSA contractor, Edward Snowden. Mm. In 2005, the antennas at Sugar Grove were sweeping 1.8 million phone calls, texts, emails, and other communications targeting foreign contacts every single day. Even today, the NSA denies these claims, stating that the official mission of the Sugar Grove Research Station is to support communications research and development for the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's a giant listening post, Chris. It is, from the cell phone signals that are bouncing off the moon. Yes, but ironically, the people that are moving there in the tinfoil hats don't want to be, you know, yeah. like... Watched by the government, and yet they're right next door to these the, massive the, NSA listening the posts. The biggest binocular thing ever. Exactly. And even as crazy as that is, there is more covert operations going on in the mountains of West Virginia. Yeah, so I'm always looking things to, for things to do along my route. So I, you know, I'll get somewhere and I'll sit in my hotel room and kind of just, you know, just move the look at Google, look at Google, see what's going on, see what's out there, see what see what I could do, and I see this thing that says Greenbrier Bunker. Yep. So this is, uh, you know, and it has a hotel. So I'm like, oh, I could stay at the hotel, go to this bunker. And then I find out that it, the tour kind of sucks. Oh, okay. But I did look into it a little bit to see why there's this bunker in West Virginia, which apparently is the land of, Just of weird cons stuff. conspiracy theories. Yes. So this bunker was a secret until 1992 when the, when the Washington Post uh, released an article kind of saying, hey, this is what's going on here. Uncovering the bunker. Uncovering. It's, 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 it's in the open. And then, of course, it becomes useless as a bunker. Yeah, Because everybody knows, knows what it is. So it's basically this, this bunker built underneath a resort. Okay. It's the size of Walmart. Okay. And they used it as a like a conference center. So it was kind of like a out in the open kind of bunker, but it also had um, areas that were way, way not seen by the public. We had like 1,100 beds that were all constantly designated with congressional, like your, oh, wow. your, your, uh, your Harry Reid, this is your bed wow, right here. And then they would have 60 days worth of food hmm. at all times. Yep. 
So I was just going to read a little bit from the from from the Washington Post article, which I think is is probably the best way to do this. Super, super interesting. Okay. The year was 1960, and Randy Wicklane was building something so immense and unnerving that he dared not ask what it was. All the superior supply company plant manager was told that he was to haul concrete, an endless river of concrete, to be poured into the cavernous hole that had been excavated beside the posh Greenbrier Hotel in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Now, this is probably about, I don't know, an hour, 45 minutes drive south of the radio tower. Okay. So maybe right in that area. It's kind of, yeah, similar. Um, he remembers the urgency about the job. His super supervisor hollering, hurry up, even instructing him to push the legal weight limit on his truckloads and paying the fines that resulted. Hmm. So you got to keep in mind, if this is 1960, what are we in right there? The Cold War. Right. So, this so is, you're like... This is full duck and cover time, right? Yep. It's like the cartoons with duck and cover. Atomic yep. warfare is like this thing that is, you know, Eisenhower is president, I think, around this yep. time. This is a very unnerving time for Americans. So, yeah, hurry up. Put whatever concrete weight you need to put in that truck. Let's get it in there. Let's just, let's get it done. To keep up with the job, Superior Supply had to purchase two more concrete mixers, and still it was stretched thin. Over the next two and a half years, Wickland estimates the company had hauled some 4,000 loads of concrete and poured 50,000 tons of concrete into the abyss that scrapers, rippers, and air hammers had carved out of the shale. Cost was never an issue. <laughs> so what do you think you're thinking if you're this guy? If you're this what dude just hauling, this? what are we building? What is going on? Yeah. When construction on the facility began in 1959, near the end of the second Eisenhower administration, the Cold War was at its height and a fear of Soviet nuclear attack was deeply embedded in both the psyche of ordinary citizens and in the thoughts of Pentagon planners. Americans were excavating backyards for bomb shelters, storing cans of Campbell's soup on basement shelves and screening duck and cover films for school children. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. the government was building a number of relocation centers on the East Coast. Most were carved out of mountains and became alternate command posts for the president and cabinet or communication centers. It was the heyday of the doomsday planners. Continuity of government, as it came to be called, evolved into a military subspecialty. Near Berryville, Virginia, Mount Weather was hollowed out of solid rock and filled with state-of-the-art communications equipment, underground reservoirs, and banks of computers. Another such facility was located at Raven Rock Mountain in Pennsylvania, near Fort Ritchie. The Green Buyer Resort that housed the bunker was different in that it relied more on the element of secrecy than on any mountain of rock to shield it from incoming bombs. Yet, despite the discretion of resort staff, the existence of some hidden government installation there was widely known. Hmm. One former government official says he was told that so many people in the White Sulphur Springs area knew about the facility that the government dispatched two men who had not been briefed on the project to mingle with the locals posing as hunters to learn just how much was known and what was being said. It's like they got secret shopped. That is awesome. Yeah. According to the official, the two returned to Washington a few days later with so many details about the facility that they had to be given top secret clearance. <gasps> <laughs> so these guys didn't have top secret clearance. No, but by and the time they, they got back, they're like, they needed oh, it. Okay, yeah, you know all of those things. From the beginning, the Greenbrier Relocation Center has been run by Forsyth Associates, an obscure company ostensibly based in Arlington. 
works. Okay. It's got to be some black money oh, thing, right? Yeah. You think? Standing at the ready to operate the facility, whose entrance is only steps away from one of the Greenbrier offices, Forsyth has a cover that shows a genius for simplicity. The company's six or seven full-time employees emphatically deny any involvement with the government. <laughs> they say that their job is to repair and service Greenbrier's nearly 1,000 television sets and what? provide the hotel what? with a television service. That's what the entire company does. That's the cover story. That's a terrible cover story. It is true that Forsyth Associates employees repair TVs and deliver cable programming <laughs> to the hotel guests. And it may be true that some of the company's employees know little or nothing about the classified site. Uh -huh. But there have been plenty of signs that the company is not simply what it appears to be. Forsyth maintains a, com a, com a complex of antennas, ostensibly used to deliver cable programs atop a nearby mountain. A former government, government official who visited the site says that one of the antennas has a tube-like sensor designed to detect the brilliant light emitted uh. in a nuclear flash. That sensor, he said, would trigger an alarm within the underground facility. The company has at least two offices at the Greenbrier, one a maintenance shop for technicians and supplies, the other an administrative building in an area seldom used by resort guests. The front door of the administrative office has three separate locking mechanisms a date and time lock on the inside and on the outside, a Yale lock and a magnetic key card lock. Wow. So it's decent. I mean, we're talking sixties. Right. Technology still here. pretty secure. Chuck Oder, still an engineer. So I took sections. It's a little non sequitur because I didn't want to read the whole thing. That's so I just okay. took some interesting stuff. Chuck Oder, still an engineer with Mosler who uh, they built the door for the Greenbrier, helped build the blast-proof doors for the Greenbrier. His project records records note that he received an order for four specially built doors in February of 1960. The entry simply read Greenbrier Hotel. <laughs> but it's not like you could go to Google and look up Greenbrier Hotel, right? right. I mean, you just, True. you'd never know what the Greenbrier Hotel is. You're just like, all right, we're making doors for Greenbrier Hotel. What the hell kind of... Hotel yeah, what is this? hotel is this? It's like some bondage place or what? <laughs> but in the project jacket and the archives of the company, there is a wealth of information about Mosler's contribution to the project. Besides the specifications, one set of blueprints is written, Greenbrier Hotel, White Sulphur Springs, additional facilities. Two of the four doors ordered were gigantic, built to shield vehicular entrances. Huh. One was designated GH1, the other, GH3. With its frame and assembly, GH1 weighed more than 28 tons and measured 12 feet, 3 inches wide, and 15 feet high. The other door, GH3, weighed more than 20 tons. The doors were 19 and a half inches thick. Each was hung with two hinges. Those hinges alone weighed one and a half tons. The hinges. The hinges, the one and a half ton door hinge, according <laughs> to the records. Yet the doors were so delicately balanced that they could be open and closed with the application of a mere 50 pounds of force against their surface. Wow. The other two doors were also built. A hatch-like door measuring three feet by three and a half feet and a personnel door seven by eight. Ordinarily, the larger doors would have been constructed with two panels or leafs, but the Greenbrier doors were a single leaf. Single leaf construction maximized the door's strength, eliminating the vulnerability caused by a seam. Engineering instructions from the time note, quote, the locking devices shall be operable from the inside only and shall be protected against any possible damage by the blast action against the outside surface of the doors. In keeping with those instructions, large wheeled handles were fitted on the inside of the two larger doors. Okay. 
So I'm guessing these doors are just almost always open. Yeah. Unless you need the, unless they're shut. shut. And yeah. if they're shut, you're in there. Yes. So you probably want to come out so you'll open it eventually. So it doesn't <laughs> matter that it can only be open from the inside. Right. <laughs> wow. It's like, having, it's like shutting somebody in a trunk but not having a way to get it open, and you hope that the emergency latch yes, exactly. on the inside works. <laughs> oh, here we go. Placing the handle on the inside served two functions. First, it enabled those inside the facility to lock themselves in against those who might otherwise try to enter. Yep. Most importantly, as the instructions note, it protected the locking mechanism from the blast. Mm-hmm. Turning the handle one way, slid giant pins or rollers into the fittings behind the frame. Turning the wheel the other way, released the pins. Not surprising, the whole apparatus resembles the workings of a safe, but instead of deterring robbers, it was meant to withstand an atomic explosion. Wow. A bomb's initial impact would theoretically be absorbed by the door, then spread to the frame, then finally to the wall of concrete poured around the frame. <laughs> the door would bend inward under the strain, distorted and bowed. Uh-huh. Then would come the reactionary pressure after the blast. The door would recoil, or as the experts say, rebound, shooting outward. Without huge <laughs> pins to secure it, the door might fly off its hinges on the rebound. That's why the hinges weighed one and a half tons. Wow. From Mosler's Hamilton, Ohio plant, the doors were moved to West Virginia by train. They were too wide to be laid on an ordinary freight car, so they had to be transported standing or tilted at an angle, (laughs) requiring a special flatbed car that was low enough so the doors could clear tunnels and trestles along the way. Right. Notations on Mosler's blueprints indicate upon arrival at Greenbrier, the steel doors were to be filled with concrete. Mosler's personnel at the job site installed the doors and their frames. Wow. All right, last part here. Just how just how Congress was expected to reach this was my question as I'm Yes. How are they gonna reach this place, Jake? Right. If it's, there's a bomb going off. It's unclear. <laughs> so it's 250 miles from DC. It's a five hour drive from the Capitol. In the spring of 1962, just as the facility became operational, the CNO and the Greenbrier, I don't know what CNO is, uh, paid some ninety thousand dollars to have the runway at the Greenbrier Airport Valley extended. According to a promotional brochure at the time. Today, that airport has a 7,000-foot runway capable of handling a commercial jetliner, but it's still an hour's flight from Washington. And because very few members of Congress have been aware that the facility exists, it would take far longer than that to round them up. Yeah. And that was one of the clues, I think, that something was going on. Because when you have a town of 1,000 people with a 7,000-foot runway, yes. something's going oh. on. I forgot to tell you yeah. the other thing that happened that added to just the weirdness that I learned during the rally. Hold on. Do you want to tell me now? Or, yes, because okay. it, it correlates. Yeah. Two F-18s were buzzing through the canyon as we were all rallying together. That's awesome. Like right overhead, right there. I love it. And we're like, what, the, what is going on? What is this on? place? It's, like, it's yes. like the East Coast Area 51. Yes, it, it really exactly. Is. The installation only makes sense if the planners anticipated evacuating Congress many hours Right. If not days before a crisis turned from rhetoric to attack. And I think it's important to think about this and go, okay, today that would be impossible because the information would just get out so fast. Right. Back then, slower. Right. Telephones so only. maybe they hear from one of their spy assets that they're going to launch nukes or something. And they say, okay, well, let's just move let's all Let's get everybody together. Keep it quiet. There. Here's the thing, though. You weren't allowed to bring your family which I'll get to in the next paragraph. Mobilizing 535 members of Congress and evacuating them to a resort area 250 miles away in the middle of such a crisis would almost certainly draw some unwanted attention. Yeah, a little bit. But it doesn't matter at that point. Yeah, nuke is already going to go off. It doesn't matter that you're creating chaos. 
No. You're just trying to kick a continuity of government. Yep. So that everybody else can be dead, but you can still govern. Yeah. Right? I guess. Another problem is that the members of Congress would be barred from bringing their spouses or children. Tip O'Neill recalls that as Speaker, he received an annual briefing on the facility, but he doesn't huh. didn't pay much attention to it. Quote, I kind of just lost interest in it when they told me my wife would not be going with me. I said, Jesus, you don't think I'm going to run away and leave my wife? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Right. O'Neill's concerns have been repeatedly echoed by cabinet secretaries and other top officials during mock exercises at other relocation centers. Yeah. It's other relocation oh, yeah. centers. Oh, yeah. Only a few have expressed a willingness to leave Washington, ground zero, in almost every attack scenario without their families. Yeah. You're just, you're not going to you do it. No. Nope. You know, that's just genetic. You're not, yes. you're not going to do it. I'm not going to leave my kids. No. You know, forget it. All these factors made the utility of the Green Bar facility questionable from the beginning. Huh. In the decades since it was conceived and built, the number of nuclear weapons has vastly multiplied, and their accuracy has been greatly enhanced. And the time elapsed from launch to impact could be less than 15 minutes. Yeah. Quote, I never put much credence in it, to tell you the truth. I just didn't think it would work, Tip O'Neill said. Well, the people staying at Greenbrier Resort They're all set. would be set. They're all set. <laughs> no accidents from Congress has ever been attempted, so the practicality of relocation plan has never been put to the test. Although you do see when you're driving around D.C., and I notice this, there's all kinds of like evacuation route stuff, um, the evacuation route. Well, you yep. got to keep them clear. And they have control over all the stoplights. They'll just gridlock everything else, yep. and they'll turn everything green. Wow. The green uh, no exits from Congress has ever been attempted, so the practicality of the relocation plan has never been put to the test. On at least one occasion, however, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Greenbrier facility was put on high alert. Huh. One former official recalls being told of a series of crates arriving at Greenbrier during that period, sent from Washington by the architect of the Capitol. Oh, Inside the official documents. was told were original manuscripts yep. dating, back, dating back to the 18th century, part of an apparent effort to disperse critical government documents so that not all would be incinerated in a nuclear conflagration. Wow. So I, I just, I mean, you're not, you're not going to leave without your wife, right? Right. And it, it just doesn't seem possible. But I, there's a couple other interesting things that I thought would to think about. So when you get here and you're at this place, yeah. they give you two outfits. You got to get rid of all your other clothes. Why? And so that you aren't better dressed than anyone else. What? Because they want to eliminate any sense of identity. Why? That's just what they do. They don't want any kind of upheaval or power struggles or anything like that. But uh, these are all government leaders anyways. Oh, so what? You think after 60 days when they run out of food that the master debaters is are going to just... <laughs> the master debaters. <laughs> I okay. Just, I just wanted to say that. Yes. Uh, there were, so the, the uh, Two other outfits, thing that yeah. kind of let people know that something was going on, that in this conference hall where they would they would have like the Virginia Medical Association would have a conference there. Right. There was an extreme lopsided amount of male bathrooms. Way more male bathrooms than female bathrooms because the majority of right. government is men. So people were like, what's going on? And you have to imagine the logistics <laughs> of keeping 1,100 people uh, at all times alive. So you got 60 days worth of food. But over the course of this time, what do you have to do? Always have to have the food ready. Okay. So it's always cycling out. 1,100 oh, people worth right. of food for 60 days. They're always bringing it in and taking away every the waste. Month. Every month. Every 60 days or whatever. Wow. So uh, anyway, that's Project Greek Island in a in a nutshell. There's a lot more, but that's a nutshell. That's where all your master debaters are going to go, and they're wow. basically after 60 days going to eat each other alive. Yeah, West Virginia. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. Lots of crazy stuff yeah. going on. Well, 
That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's All it. right. Lots of crazy stuff going on. That's it. That's it. The uh, the uh, East Coast Area 51, ladies I and gentlemen. I like that. I yeah, think it East is. Coast Area 51. For sure. All right. That's it for now, guys. We will see you next week. Take care. Take me home.